Pray with me. O Holy One, who is untamed by the names that we give you, would you in this moment call us by name? Holy Spirit, speak our name that we may know who we are. That we may know the truth which you have for us in this moment. That somehow by hearing you speak our name, we'll trust in the love brought to earth by the one whose name is above all names, Jesus. O holy God, we hear and say so many words in the course of a single day, and yet it is your word we need. Speak now, even through the foolishness of preaching. Speak and help us to be listeners, not just with our ears, not even just with our minds, but with our hearts and with our wills, so that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. O Holy One, thank you for those times when the rhythm of our life catches the cadence of your kingdom. And we know that in those moments, your grace is at work transforming us to be more like you. O Holy One, you who are timeless, we thank you not only for what has been, not only for what is, but we thank you for what is yet to be. We live with a sense of anticipation, for we are men and women of faith. Would you somehow, even tonight, move us out to the edge of our faith, that we would see the new, that we would see that you are able to lead us in paths of righteousness for your sake. O Holy One, grant us ease to breathe deeply in this moment in your presence. Help us to link arm in arm with one another and with you. Holy One, would you be our teacher, our guide, our counselor, our comforter, our corrector? Give us this night one finger of faith which we might, with which we might touch even the hem of your garment that we too might be whole. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful to see you tonight. I know you're busy. School, work, family, so many, many things pulling you in lots of directions. And that you'd be here tonight is not an insignificant thing. Some of you were here this morning. And uh, this morning we looked at a, an encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And we talked about what a difference one day can make in a person's life. It can make a forever difference. We've experienced that. Tonight I want to look at another encounter from the New Testament. A story told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The fullest telling is in Mark's Gospel, and I'm going to read that in just a moment from Mark chapter 5. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but when I was saying that, I was reminded of a friend of mine, in fact, a college roommate who pastors a church in Indiana, and in the church is a family with four boys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Roy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where Roy came from there. 
I think a grandfather finally got in on that. But that's extra, just just uh, extra. Let's look at this passage. And again, Jesus encounters a person and makes a forever change. Mark 5, beginning at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. While he was by the lake, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please, come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you asked, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It may be that you noticed in the reading that there are, in fact, two encounters in that passage. The first is the encounter that Jesus has with this ruler of the synagogue, this man Jairus, who comes and sees Jesus and, and is just overwhelmed in that moment, so much that he, he casts his pride away and he comes and gets down in the dirt before Jesus and pleads his case. His daughter is dying. Nothing matters in his life but that. And he says to Jesus, would you come and put your hands on her that she might live? And that almost matter-of-factly, without any commentary, the Scripture just says, so Jesus went with him. <laughs> Ask, you shall receive. But as Jesus is going to the house of Jairus, uh, there is another encounter. We're told how a woman kind of gets into the cadence of that walk and, and she begins to work her way up through the crowd and, and gets close enough to just touch his clothes. And in that moment, she's healed. It is that second story, the story within the story, that I want you to think with me about tonight. It's a story of the power that can be released if we would even raise one finger of faith in the direction of Christ. Jesus said, a, a grain of mustard seed. I say to you tonight, one finger of faith. There is power in human touch. We all know that. We understand that. In May of 1985, in the heart of New York City, one of those great construction cranes that they use for the skyscrapers weighed 35 tons. Somehow it came loose from its moorings and twisted in the wind and fell from its lofty perch and came crashing down in the midst of all of that crowd onto the street below. People ran in every direction, but when the steel settled down, a young 
pedestrian, a young woman named Bridget Gurney, was penned underneath that mass of twisted steel. The first rescue worker on the scene was a man named Paul Rigonier. He was helpless. How could he move that much steel? But rescue workers are wonderful people. And somehow he just began to work his way, worm his way, really, in through that mass of steel until he could get far enough. He couldn't get all the way to Bridget. He couldn't even see her face, but he could see her hand. And so he reached his way through, and for the next six hours, he held her hand. A few days later, from her hospital bed, Bridget Gurney said the thing that helped her through that moment of great pain and fear was that someone held her hand. There is great power in human touch. There is life-sustaining power in human touch. It is, in fact, the most powerful form of human communication, even more powerful than verbal communication. For example, it is so powerful it has to be regulated by the state. You are free verbally to declare that you're angry with somebody, but you are not free to physically say you're angry with somebody. You are free to declare your love to another person. Valentine's Day is coming. But you are not free to force your physical affection on another person. It's too powerful. Recent years, there's been a lot of studies about nonverbal communication and uh, physical communication as well. One particular study that caught my attention was done at Purdue University under a federal grant, which means it was done with our money. Uh, and a professor there, Dr. Richard Heflin, assembled a group of uh, graduate researchers and they studied thousands of cases of human touching. And they found out all kinds of things. They found out, for example, that strangers don't like to be touched by people they don't know. I could have told them that for free. <laughs> Saved them all a lot of time and us a lot of money. They documented in this study that people don't like touches which give pain. Hello. We knew that. Thank you. But we knew that. They also documented that people don't like touching when it draws attention to some flaw. For example, somebody walks up to you, pokes you in the stomach, says, putting on a little weight there, aren't you? People don't like that. They, uh, they determined, as another part of the study, that waitresses who touch a customer's hand or shoulder in the course of serving a meal get bigger tips. Anybody working in food service today? We all know that athletes seemingly unashamedly encourage one another in some ways that are, well, we won't go there. Um, there's power in touching. That's all I'm saying. Heslin and his research team uh, uh, categorized human touching in five different ways. First, they said there is the functional or professional touch. Now, that's the kind of touching that goes on between professionals and their clients or patients. A barber, a hairdresser, a dentist, a doctor, a tailor. I mean, when would you let a perfect stranger put his or her fingers in your mouth or measure your inseam? Hello. We don't do that. But in the course of professional endeavors, people do that. Dentists do that. And we don't think anything about it because it's simply a functional touch. It communicates nothing beyond that function. Second kind of touching is a kind of social or polite touch. That's what happens when you meet a stranger for the first time. You may not know that person. You may not know anything about the person, but what do you do? 
He touched them. It is the first sign of a relationship. In this category is also the kind of touching that goes on in a crowded elevator or on a on city bus. There's, there's touching, but it's casual. It doesn't, it doesn't communicate much, but it signifies that there is some closure of space. Third, Heslin's study said that there are the touches of friendship and warmth. This is the kind of touching that takes place among uh, close friends, um, maybe sometimes even uh, just among extended kind of family members. It, it would be when, when a, a friend puts his arm around a buddy or, or uh, uh, takes a hand when they're talking or something like that. It says that there is more than just the social dimension. There is a personal dimension here. And there's a kind of touching that goes on there. Fourth touching documented in the study was the touches of uh, love and intimacy among family members. The parents who, who caress their children, kiss them, and uh, all of that. I, I grew up in a kissing family. Uh, as a little guy, I didn't like it. I, I, I got to like it better over time. But uh, in our family, we had a large family. When family members would come, everybody got a hug and a kiss. And it didn't matter whether you didn't remember Aunt Catherine or not. You got lined up and you got a hug and a kiss. Why? Because we were family. And it's just part of family life. So that's the fourth kind of touching. That kind of intimacy in families. The fifth touch, of course, is the sexual touch reserved for marriage. Those kinds of touching. Functional, social, friendship, family, sexual. I read the study and I thought about this passage where this woman says, if I can just touch Jesus, It'll make a difference. I want to suggest to you tonight that if we could assemble a research team and all of that, I think we could document that in addition to the kinds of physical touching that goes on, there are some spiritual ways that people touch God with different responses. Two or three of them are in this passage. First of all, in the New Testament large and certainly in this passage, there are those who touch Christ inadvertently, accidentally, you might say. Uh, in my New Testament, uh, in this passage, I have underlined in that reading all the times that the, the word crowd is mentioned. I don't remember doing that, but I noticed it today as I was reading back through it. Crowd, crowd, large crowd, all of that. Uh, in a large crowd, what happens? People touch each other. And that's what's happening here. There are folks that got caught up in this. Uh, they just were part of it. And probably someone in that crowd touched Jesus, but it didn't change his or her life. And Jesus didn't stop the parade because it wasn't anything other than an inadvertent touch, a casual touch. I think, too, of all the people in this society in which we live that encounter the things of God and encounter Christ casually and are never changed by it. Think back one month ago in a few days, Christmas. Every radio station, Christmas, joy to the world, all of that. Didn't matter whether you were, were Hindu or, or Buddhist or anything. Uh, somebody sent you a Christmas card. And there's the manger and all of that. And all of this bombardment, but it never seems to make a real difference because it doesn't communicate anything other than a kind of inadvertent touch. A second touch, beyond the casual spiritual touch, is the touch of curiosity. I think the crowd assembled because they were taken by what they saw when Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, gets down in the dirt before this Galilean preacher. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to go. Touch the daughter that she might live. 
It's not a person in this room. If we felt like we'd see somebody raised from the dead, we'd get in that parade. We'd want to see it. There's a sense of curiosity that moves that. But God doesn't just respond. God doesn't respond to just the curious touch. There's a different kind of touch and the one we think about tonight. And that is the touch of faith. It's not casual. It's not curious. There is a decision. There's a moment of faith there. And that's the faith of this woman. The record tells us that this touch came as she worked her way in to the crowd. This is an unusual miracle in that it is parenthetical. By that I mean it, it happens as a kind of parenthesis in a broader story. Uh, just like this morning when Jesus stopped when he got to where Zacchaeus was up in the tree, the same kind of thing happens here. Jesus stops when this woman uh, uh, touches him. It says to me he's not so busy going somewhere else to meet somebody else's need that he doesn't have time for you and for me. So here she comes, this woman. She's coming to Jesus, not inadvertently, but with clarity of purpose. She comes not out of curiosity, but out of her own need and out of at least some measure of faith in his ability to heal and restore her. So we affirm that there is the power in Christ to touch and to make a difference, even in the long-standing, deep issues of life. This woman, the Scripture says, lived with that problem for 12 years. 4,380 days. 4,380 sunrises when she got up wondering if this might be the day she'd find an answer. 4,380 nights when she went to bed still plagued by that problem. 48 seasons. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Year after year. 105,000 hours. Now, the Gospels don't tell us the nature of her problem. It's both revealed and concealed at the same time. We don't know, for example, whether this situation the woman was wrestling with was constant over 12 years, every day, every moment, or whether it was just kind of intermittent. That might have been worse, because there had been moments when maybe she's better and then, no, there's a problem. And maybe she's better and then it happens again. Have you noticed in your life that long-standing problems, those things we wrestle with for years, have a way of taking on a life of their own. And what happens is we adjust the rest of our life to that problem. We kind of compensate for it. And it has a way of imprisoning us. That we do pretty well, but there's always that issue on the sidelines and sometimes in the center of how we live and work and all of that. Well, one of the good news things in this passage is that even those deep, long-standing, perpetual problems can be touched by Christ. This was a long-standing problem for this woman and a very painful problem. I'm intrigued at verse 26 when it says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She'd lived with this. She strived to find help year after year until not only physically and mentally, but now economically, she is depleted. Anybody ever wrestle with that kind of a thing? 
where there's just an area of your life that you can't seem to really get victory in. You go from day to day, maybe even revival to revival, or book to book, or maybe even counselor to counselor, and make progress, but it just is always kind of there. I wonder if this woman ever thought, what's the point? I've tried everything else. I can't seem to get any better. Some of you have, or you may still uh, read the writings of Paul Tournier, a Swiss psychiatrist from a generation ago. He wrote a classic book about whole persons. And he's a Christian man. And I was captured by a a paragraph or two in, in one of his books where he says, psychologists have clearly shown the futility of the idea that one can get rid of an obsession or regain confidence or even recall a name simply by trying harder. The person who makes tremendous efforts to become better is like a man pushing on a door marked pull. Great image. He says there is futility in simply trying harder. Because some things aren't solved that way. You're pushing on a door that really is marked pull. He goes on to say that true liberation comes only through genuine personal encounter with Jesus. And he says this, this is especially true of religious people who pretend sometimes to be free from passions and maybe even sins when they are not. He says they do not need more religion. They need a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ. The liberator is not legalism. It's not just striving to be a good person, as important as that is. I mean, you could turn over leaves all day long until the whole tree is upside down, and it might not make a difference in that core area of your life. Here is a woman who is suffering with a perennial problem year after year, painful problem. She suffered much, pointless problem. Rather than getting better, she got worse. Until that moment when she finally lifts one finger of faith. You may say, well, that's an interesting story and I'm sure it happened and, and yet it never has happened in my life. There is a curious thing about this woman. Did you notice how imperfect her faith is? She is not a model for us to follow in lots of ways. Uh, it's superstitious in a way. If I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Uh, it is secret. She doesn't want anybody to know. So she just kind of sneaks up behind Jesus, maneuvering her way through the crowd, coming up behind him, hoping to kind of steal a blessing. I, I, I say to you, her, her faith is imperfect, but it was still sufficient. What I think happens sometimes when we deal with deep problems, long-standing problems in our life, is that we keep waiting until we kind of get to the right moment when we feel better or we get an insight or somehow we get stronger. But instead of waiting, I think we need to act on it. This woman, I have a feeling, all the way through this this maneuvering through the crowd was engaged in some very serious self-talk. I think the tape was running in her in her head and she was having this inner conversation. Part of her was saying, what in the world are you doing? 
Is this going to make any difference? She wouldn't give in to it. What happens if, if the bleeding starts in the middle of this crowd? She wouldn't give in to it. What makes you think that touching his clothes would make a difference? I, I think there were roadblocks all the way along. But for some reason, in that moment, she had enough faith, as flawed as it was, to come close enough to Jesus to touch Him. And it made all the difference in the world. When she touches Him, the Scripture says, immediately the bleeding stopped. And then, the next verse says, she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What a feeling that must have been after 12 years. I think some people convince themselves they will never feel whole ever again. What a beautiful word, free. The conclusion of last night's message, I read that little thing from Peter Hale's book about the little girl that covered up the writing on the wall. And, and I said a kind of passing comment that, that the gospel is not about covering up. It's about cleaning up. The same kind of thing here. God has come to really set us free, even in those areas of our life. Now, if you'll notice at verse 30, Jesus realizes that power had gone out of him. You see, the Lord can distinguish the touch of faith from just a touch of curiosity or a casual touch or let's see what happens if I would do this. So he stops the crowd and he asks what must have seemed like a rather comical question. What does he ask? Who touched me? And what do the disciples say? What do you mean, who touched you? All these people around, everybody touched you. But what did Jesus do? He just stood there. Who touched me? Do you think he didn't know? I think he knew. He wasn't waiting, so he would find out. He was giving this woman a little time to process what had happened. Who touched me? Scripture says the woman then, knowing what had happened, came fearfully to Jesus and confesses all of that. To which he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go and be freed from your suffering. Think what, it would, think what would have happened if she had not kind of taken that step of public acknowledgement. She would have missed the affirmation daughter. You see, Jesus doesn't want just a casual kind of relationship. Uh, he doesn't exist as a kind of parachute when everything else fails. Go to God. Daughter is what kind of word? It's a word of relationship. It's a word of family, isn't it? Suddenly, that single word just says to her, you belong. You're part of the family. I accept you. And so she would have missed that if she hadn't come forward. She would have missed that public kind of affirmation of her faith. Your faith has healed you, he said. And then he gives her this kind of benediction. Go in peace. He was, he was interested in healing her in ways beyond just physical healing. He healed her emotionally, I think, in that moment. And, and a sense of, of mental... And, and, and even the anxiety that that she would, maybe this wouldn't last. He said, no, go in peace. I was just a little bit late coming in. I mean, I, was, I wasn't late tonight, but I was later than what I normally am here. Uh, because I came over and uh, 
I walked through a couple of the buildings. I used to teach here, and uh, that's a that's a wonderful moment in my life, a kind of touchstone moment for me in beginning my work in, in higher education. And I was walking through. In fact, when I when I arrived here, um, my first office was in a closet, uh, no windows, uh, just some buckets and some things like that. And uh, I just wanted to see the closet again, and uh, <laughs> so I walked around. But as I was walking through, uh, I remembered, of course, I had this message on my mind, and I remembered something tonight that I hadn't thought about in a long time. One night, just kind of like this, teaching night, I came in, came into the back of the classroom, and uh, walked by a fellow seated in the, in the back row on the corner. I, I don't remember who it was. I, I don't even know that I knew his name at that moment. But I came in, and I stopped, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I just said, uh, well, how's your week going? And we had some kind of a little conversation, and I went on, and I didn't think anything about it. I mean, how many conversations like that does a person have? You have lots of times when you talk to people. A few days later, though, in my office under the door was a, was a note. Dear Prof, the other night when you came to class and you stopped and put your hand on my shoulder... He said, it made all the difference in the world. He said, earlier that day, I had just decided I was going to leave NBC. Uh, I, I wasn't sure I was cut out for this. Uh, things weren't going well. Stuff was kind of rough at home. And he said, I just thought, who cares? And he said, you came in and put your hand on my shoulder and just asked me about my day. And that was a very minor kind of thing. But it was evidently enough to get him through that moment. And he went on and finished and has had really a wonderful ministerial career. It's a scary thing to think how close it came. So I thought about that tonight, the power of touch. thought about this verse and tried to say, all right, what's the word for us tonight? Well, I think this is one of those passages that speak to us in lots of different levels. It may speak to someone here tonight who's wrestling with an issue that you've been wrestling with for a long, long time and you've pretty well decided that'll never get any better. I want to say to you, it can get better. Even in spite of all the past times when things didn't work, in spite of all of the doubts that are in your mind and all of that, you only need one finger of faith, one moment when you, when you really kind of put everything into that moment. And I want to encourage you, don't let Satan get up on the shoulder and whisper into your ear that you're going to live in defeat in that area of your life from now on. You need not do that. But I also think there's a word for the church here and how we respond to one another. And, you know, we live in a crazy world where sex has just gone mad and, and you've got to be careful about touching people and, and all of that. But at the same time, I, I, I think there ought to be a sense of family in the, in the house of God and a sense of kingdom uh, relationship there. And um, I don't know. I don't know even what I'm quite trying to say to you other than I believe that kind of connection that's genuine, heartfelt, one to another can sometimes say more than just a, hey, how you doing, as you, run, as you run on. So just let the Lord interpret all of that for you. We're going to sing a song which I think really brings into focus 
what, what the Scripture says to us. It's a, it's a familiar chorus song. It says, He is able. He is able. Say those three words. He is able. That's true. You found it true in other areas. God is able in that moment of your life. God is able for those that you will be ministering to who are discouraged, who are defeated, whose homes are in jeopardy. God is able if we can somehow engender even one finger of faith. So let's celebrate that tonight as we sing this. Always, as you know, at NBC and anywhere we are, the altar is open if you want to pray. Um, you know, the woman didn't want to get up and come forward. She didn't want anybody to see her. But, but she, would have missed, she would have missed a great blessing without that. So come if you want to come and pray.